Welcome to the XY Advisor Podcast, a global community of financial advisors sharing and learning with one another to drive the positive evolution of financial advice. To get involved, go to xyadvisor.com or simply download the XY Advisor app. This series is brought to you by AIA Australia, committed to working with advisors to protect the financial health and welfare of more than 3 million Australians. In 2020, AIA paid over 2.2 billion in claims. That's a little over $42 million each week and clients needed it most. AIA Australia would like to help you arm yourself for your next client appointment with this five-part series into Australia's income protection industry from the 90s to now. Strengthen your knowledge and conversations with valuable insights from a panel of speakers from various backgrounds, exploring how the new generation of IP products can help your clients. Welcome back to this episode, the fifth and final episode in our five-part series on IDII. In this particular episode, we are diving into the future. What could possibly happen from here? Uh, and we ask our expert panel to comment on all sorts of things around what they're, what they're expecting the future may hold. Welcome back, Catherine. Good to be back. We are talking about the future. Where to from here? Mm-hmm. Tell us about uh, what, what are your thoughts on uh, you know where we're at now and, and where we're heading. Mm. Well, I feel like it, obviously we've had so much legislative change. We've had all these these product changes. I feel like mm, we're in the middle of it. I think is is it a good way to go? We had our the loss of agreed value March twenty twenty. We've had these uh, IDII changes um, October this year, but we've still got the APRA changes to the five year renewal contract term schedule for next year. So timeline wise, I feel we're in the middle of the mix, but Obviously, all the insurers have come out. They've got their offers on the market. Um, I think everybody's looking and peeking into everybody else's PDSs. Uh, And so I actually expect to see a little bit of copycat and adjustments, um, especially if uh, some of the insurers start to see some new business drop off as a result of, um, you know, uh, not being as competitive as their fellow insurer. Yeah, I think I think you're absolutely right. I feel like there's the, the the water levels. It's like a little choppy ocean at the moment. There's a lot of water up and down, and there'll be that'll start to settle down where you know people will sort of end up bringing their products closer. Um, mm. So that means, I guess, a little bit more disruption for advisors then as products change. Mm. Absolutely, I think you're going to have to allow um, quite a significant amount of time to familiarise um, with the changes. Um, that have happened to date, but also be quite cognizant of the the changes that will inevitably come out over the next six to twelve months. And then, of course, then we've got that five year contract term. So, tell us about the t- tell us about your thoughts around the five year contract term. How that's where's, where's that uh, going to go? I think that's fraught with danger. Uh, um, administratively, I don't see how it can be achieved. Uh, I honestly believe that the the intent of it is to ensure the sustainability of our industry. I think the changes that we've just been through will do the majority of that. Um, you know, so that five year contract term, I do think it's largely unnecessary, and the risks the risks absolutely outweigh the benefits. Um, I some of the things I've spoken about on the task force is I'm 
significant have significant concerns um, around working parents because we all know that home duties is not an insurable occupation. Uh, so if a five-year renewable term comes up while someone's on parental leave, the intention is that you're not supposed to have a loss of cover because of medical reasons, um, only occupational and pastime changes, but it's a temporary situation. So you could have a parent who has lost their covers because it renews in that time frame, uh, and then when they go to get that cover back, it's likely because pregnancy is pretty tough on the body um, that there will be they when they do get that cover back, um, it'll be on potentially with exclusions. Um, so it's failed that test of not supposed to have a detrimental impact on the medical reinsurability. So there's issues like that that have to be played out. Then you've got the debate of if it's a new contract, does new business commissions apply? Um, that's going to get expensive from the for the insurers if that's the case. Um, I understand that I think they're going out getting legal opinions on that one at the moment. And then there's the whole having the appropriate IT systems in the background to be able to administer those changes and what is the role of the advisor in all of that? So many unanswered questions <laughs> when, you, when you put it that way. Yes, a significant unanswered uh, question. So, but that would make it more akin to the group space, but with an individual underlay. Because at the moment, when the the group insurers go out and do that, they just put it out to tender, um, and you don't really get a say in the matter. So, there's some similarities to that, but of course, you've got that individual assessment and individual adjustments being made. That adds a lot of energy cost uh, and cost, but that's going to just drive prices up. That's the opposite of sustainable. Yeah. Now we've um, we've We've seen, you mentioned that from one of the earlier uh, episodes, we talked about the concept of, you know, in the health insurance industry, for example, mm-hmm. you know, once a year they approve premiums and pricing. And do, do you see that could be something that APRA step in and, and look at with? No, they've made it really clear that they're not a pricing regulator. So that's not something that they um, they want to dabble in. Um, even when there's been complaints about some of the insurers having excessive upfront discounting programs, they've said, look, we don't actually think that's an issue, despite most advisors saying, look, if you're putting a discount on a policy or a product that is known to be unsustainable, how can that be meeting the expectations of what you'd think APRA would expect, but they've just simply washed their hands of it. So um, so I can't see them stepping in um, to look at the adequacy of premium increases um, or the appropriateness in the future, but what I am hoping to see is that they will start to track the rate of change for premium increases, um, but that will be quite difficult because, as we know, it's not just the same rate for everyone across the board. It's applied based on gender, occupation, where you live, makes it quite difficult to track. Yep. What are your thoughts on um, premiums moving forward, both old product and new product? Well, the old products, I think we're going to see those those premium increases. It's, it's going to happen. The new products, I think we'll see adjustments as far as insurers adjusting their products to find where they sit in the market. Um but there is always going to be that extra emphasis on making sure that cover is sustainable. Uh, so I'm less concerned about the new products, but, you know, it would be foolish to think that there wouldn't be pricing adjustments. Yep. And uh, what about commissions moving forward? What are your thoughts on what that might look like in the future? Yeah, I, I, don't, have any, uh, I don't have any fear about commissions being removed from the industry. Uh, I think that 
the early outcomes of ASIC's review shows that there has been improvement in the quality of advice. We've also seen comments from the opposition talking about they're starting to soften their view and understanding, having reference to the overseas models, that um, it does seem to have a place, but they're quite cautious with those remarks. So I think that given that, um, I'm not planning to adjust my business model for um, the loss of commissions. So um, I'm not too worried about that. Now, in previous episode, we touched on advice affordability uh, in mm-hmm. risk moving forward. What are your thoughts? Um, are we going to start seeing uh, non-advised products kick in, um, the robo-type stuff? Um, if, yeah, if advice I have affordability. Yeah. yeah, I have mixed feelings about this one because at the end of the day, one of the things that helps make insurance affordable is having enough lives in the pool. So you kind of want to get as many people in which takes multiple channels, whether it's direct, whether it's group, whether it's advised um, or, you know, general advice, which is that sort of grey space which, which um, everyone's trying to work out where, where it fits and how compliant and how to do that and without actually stepping into personal advice. So that's, that's quite tricky. So as far as that goes, the more lives that are there, the better. So that means there should be more channels open, but as long as it's um, done with the right knowledge behind it, you know, and the clients being fully aware of viral beware versus, um, oh, yeah, it's a, I don't know. It's, it's just a minefield on that front. Talk to me about the concept of risk specialist because this has moved. We've seen, obviously, it's been, the term's been around for a long time, um, but is this something now in the, as we move through the future, is, is, is risk specialist going to become a, even more so? You know, holistic advisors won't do risk anymore. They'll re- refer it off. What are your thoughts? Yes, um, that's my prediction in a nutshell. I think that we're definitely going to see the rise of the risk specialist. Um, It's interesting. I was looking at um, or came across some data which was saying that while there are many advisors that write risk, I think it was an NMG report that indicated that there was only about 400 risk specialists where the pri- across Australia. So out of all the advisors, there are a lot that touch risk, but not many that specialise. Uh, so it will be interesting. I don't know what the demographic is of those advisors to see what happens over so up to 2026 with the education side of things, what happens there. So, But what I am seeing is more advisors who dabble in risk are moving away from it. They're recognising that the complexities are there, the remuneration is down, um, and unless you're doing it day in, day out, it's quite difficult to be on top of it. So it, the the downside risk far outweighs the benefit. So definitely seeing more advisors step away. But I have seen the alternative where some generalists have gone, if I want to do risk, I'm going to just do risk now. So I'm seeing that as well. But usually it's, it's more the people exiting the risk space. Um, but I think the real danger is that given the low entrance to our industry, Unless you've got unless you've got full practice advisors switching to become risk specialists, um, it will take a really long time. Because if someone's going to go study a degree in financial planning, I can't see them in a position where they're going to go. Let's just focus on insurance after studying everything else. Um, so I think it will take a long time for numbers to re- to recover. Yeah, interesting. So we we need the risk specialists, but it's going to be hard to find them. Correct. So that's good if you're a risk specialist and you can do it well. Yeah, there's definitely a supply and demand uh, equation to be spoken about there. Um, big picture, looking out, um, disruptors, you know, the big the big uh, tech companies, the the Facebooks, Amazons of the world, uh, how do you see them playing a role in the future of, of risk? Well, look, they're going to 
I would actually optimistically say I hope they do break some ground um, because I would rather have someone with a really a, a big business with a big budget break the ground on how to master, um, you know, say, for example, general advice and have them put their butt in the fire and, and, and make all the mistakes um, to allow, you know, the rest of us to learn the lessons of what not to do um, before dabbling in that space. So, you know, I don't think it's a bad thing. I think we need more people seeing life insurance and protecting your loved ones as as normal. And if it takes a couple of big corporations to throw money into getting that message out there, then that's a, that's a, that's a good thing. It's like those um, horrible life insurance ads on daytime TV. It's like, I hate those products, but I like that they make people think about it. Like I said, so it's pick your battles and, and focus on how you can use it to your advantage. Wonderful, Catherine. Thanks so much for coming on and chatting to us all about the uh, the IDII changes. How can people get hold of you, hold of you if they want to continue the conversation? Yeah, absolutely. So um, people can always uh, shoot me an email, um, which is just the letters KH, my initials, at hcis.com.au. Or uh, you can head to my website. I actually have a Calendly plug-in there if you wanted to book in a Zoom phone or other catch-up, um, which is just hcis.com.au. Thank you. Welcome back, Jeff. Thanks, Fraser. Good to be here for the final final one and look towards the future. And yeah, great. I'm looking forward to it as well. So thank you for joining us for the entire series, actually. But uh, look, we, we are talking about the future in this one. Um, you know, we've had the changes come into effect. Uh, we have some certainty around what it kind of looks like. Um, but as we move forward, there's still a lot of uncertainty, I guess. Yeah, there is definitely. Um, we're still getting our head around the, you know, the new products and um, how that impacts on existing books and for new clients. And, and you know, I, I guess we're expecting changes in those products as well as the insurers um, realise where they're sort of sitting with their competitors. And um, so, yeah, still a fair bit of uncertainty. And I think, you know, a little bit of cynicism from advisors and, and I'm no different in that we're talking about sustainability and that's why we've made these changes. But, you know, have they got it right? Are the products going to be sustainable or are we going to be having the same conversations in you know, five years' time and you know, in 10 years' time, I might not be here, but, uh, you know, in five years' time, <laughs> hopefully we're not having the same conversations. Yep. So so obviously the, the new products have launched. They're all very different. Um, it's not like we have uh, different different uh, flavours of vanilla on the market anymore. We've got a whole lot of different varieties to choose from. Do you think over time, though, there will be a more of a coming back to the middle in these products and, and, and maybe if, if something's working really well, then uh, the other insurers will, will then jump on that as well and, and, and launch similar products? Probably. I don't know that's necessarily a good thing, um, but I think probably it, it will. I guess there may be an element of with a smaller audience of specialist advisors who are doing potentially more business, maybe there's an ability to be a bit more niche and focus on, you know, what, what do we do really well and, and work with advisors who support that philosophy as we touched a little bit on in that previous episode. Yeah, it might be a case of certain product providers come out with products which suit certain styles of or certain philosophies. But I think, unfortunately, the way the compliance regime is built, it's it's got to be based on, you know, how do you how do you support your view of best interest and, you know, comparisons is a, is a tool that you're doing there. And if they're so far apart, you can't compare it to anything, then that makes it quite hard to back that up. And, and you know, compliance teams and lawyers will get nervous about that. So insurance, insurers may be forced to sort of come back towards the middle a little bit. 
Do what are your thoughts on speaking of comparisons? What are your thoughts on the comparison software? Do you think that's going to become less important in in the role over time? Um, right now, it's largely irrelevant to us in the income protection space because they are so different. And it's so hard to just get an easy you know line up across them, and we're we're taking the time to learn more and dig deeper into um, the I guess the underlying products. Um, I think risk specialists probably do that more consistently anyway, and therefore they they rely less on the research houses. It's more the advisors who are doing you know one case a month or the occasional client where they don't have that time or energy or expertise necessarily to um, go that deep on the products where they have to rely on the research houses. So I think you know in that space still going to have the same role to play I think in the specialist space which as we talked about is narrowed and narrower and deeper um, potentially becomes less less important and and you know as I said in the short term for us it, it's almost irrelevant because the research houses can't line up those products as they used to and do you think the as you mentioned risk specialists I and mean, we you sort of touched on in the previous episode with some of the stats around that but do you think the risk specialists um, will now segregate or split off over the next few years and and become a, a, a complete specialty? I think it is is already to a degree. Um, I think some people are doing it really well. I mean, we appointed in our business a risk specialist um, earlier in the year, and he, he's fantastic. Uh, Dom's doing a great job, and, you know, I'm really glad he's here with all these changes going through. Um, and that was the choice we made. So I think there can be opportunities for businesses to bring that within their team, uh, but there are also, I know, some really great risk specialist businesses out there. And I think to do it properly, you need to have that extra time and energy and resource available. And uh, obviously, commissions has been a big part of of insurance over you know over the over its history lifetime, you could say. Um, yeah. Moving forward, though, obviously we've seen some reductions in the past. But moving forward, how do you, what are your thoughts on commissions? Well, is it going to be something that you know future governments might rule out, or, or what are your ideas? It's a challenging one. I think, you know, the Labor sort of flagged that they were not very keen on commissions, but they seem to have softened their stance in, in recent months, which is good. And, and I don't think they're saying, you know, we're, we're all for it, but they're saying we're happy to happy to be convinced that, that it still makes sense. I think in the main, it does make sense to maintain commissions. But I think we've also got to be mindful that we have had commissions forever and we still have underinsurance and we still have you know, challenges in this space. So commissions alone isn't the answer. It's not like just because if we if we increase commissions, we're going to solve under insurance is kind of not the positioning. But I do think um, the nature of the insurance process is that, you know, it's challenging if there isn't success in getting the business in force for somebody to want to pay the fee that it might cost to get that business in force. Um, and so a commission structure works well also for lower you know, lower premiums and, and lower value clients, it's a really important way of getting them into the, the pool and getting them covered as well. So I, I definitely believe there's a role for commissions to be played, to, to play. Um, and I think, you know, government and, and regulators in the main understand that it's something they need to consider um, and, and keep keep on board. But I wouldn't, you know, wouldn't hang my hat on it. Yeah, fair enough. It's, uh, it's an unusual one. If anything, it, it kind of feels like commissions might have gone a bit low. I don't know. What are you? What are your thoughts? Yeah, I think for the upfront, particularly, um, it's it's really hard work to get insurance on the books, and you know, a lot of them don't actually go through these days, or you know, don't get accepted um, at the end of the day. So yeah, I think on the upfront, particularly, it's gone a bit low. I think on the ongoing, 
it's probably okay because you've got some clients who who need a lot of maintenance year to year, other clients who uh, who, who don't for you know that first two or three years once you've set it up, it's kind of just checking in. Yeah, it's still pretty relevant. There's not a lot to be changed. So probably on you know that evens itself out on an ongoing basis. But I think upfront, I think it's gone too low. Yeah. Now um, the 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 I the first I in IDII stands for uh, individual. Um, we haven't sort of touched on uh, group really in this scenario. Do you think group will uh, insurance will end up with a similar following suit to uh, individual? Yeah, I think so. I think it's already started. You know, the price increases that have gone through group insurance are pretty significant in recent times. Um, I, I, you know, we don't have a lot of exposure in that space, um, but you know, anecdotally, I understand they're starting to feel the pressure, and you know, it's been you know, retail cover has stacked up very well against group cover in 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 many ways in recent times. I think there might be some tension in that space for the next little while while these new products are sort of settling down um, but I do think there will be changes in the group space probably because they're, they're going to be facing similar claims experience and, and sustainability issues so um, there might be some advantages in group in the short term but that, that's not a, a long-term uh, substitute I don't think yeah and if we go uh, if we go way out and we start talking about the future and uh, you know getting right out into the concept of you know what's what will advice look like in 10 15 20 years from now are the disruptives the the big technology companies the the Amazons and Facebooks of the world that know a lot of data around people or, or humans, yeah, where, where, where are we going to be? Is this still an advised product or is it going to be a lot more individual, non-advised products? I still think it's insurance is an advised product. I think there's complicating factors. I think there's a role to be played for the, I don't know, robo is the right word, but, you know, more technology-driven um, options within within the space. So I would like to see that improve, but but I would like to see that sort of improve in, con- in conjunction with advisors. So how can you make it a, you know, a process which the client can do a certain level to themselves and then if they want some advice or they need to go to the next level. Um, and that that's, yeah, I should have a similar view from an investment viewpoint and a sort of holistic advice viewpoint as well. But I think there's some opportunities there where certain clients don't necessarily need the detailed level of expertise and, and understanding that an advisor who's a specialist in this area, which I think is where we're going to be heading at least for the next five years, can bring to the table, but they do need some cover and we can get started and then they'll get to a point in time where they, they want to have a conversation and, and if we can make that easier, that'd be great. Brilliant. Thank you, Jeff, for coming on and chatting us chatting to us uh, on this series of all things uh, IDII, which is a pretty hot topic at the moment. Sure uh, if somebody wants to continue that conversation with you, what's the best way they can find you? On LinkedIn, I... I tend to look at LinkedIn fairly regularly. Um, so just look at my name, Jeff Thurek. There's not many Thureks out there, so uh, you should be able to find me. Um, yeah, I like to look at LinkedIn regularly, so have a look there um, or look at Everlesco and then shoot me an email through their website. Wonderful. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks, Fraser. Thank you for joining us, Natalie Cameron, in this final episode of our series. It, I really enjoyed having this chat, Fraser, so thank you for inviting me back again. No problem at all. Now, we had, we're, we're staring into a crystal ball and, and gazing into the future of what that could uh, could hold, which of course means none of what we say could be correct. It's all based on, <laughs> none of it's based on past performance. But uh, t- tell us about what your thoughts are with regards to, let's start with the, the concept of um, insurance specialist, because it's sort of becoming a very difficult field for a lot of sort of holistic advisors. Um, so, so Fraser, by insurance specialists, you're talking about people who focus solely on uh, on risk uh, rather than uh, sort of financial planning more broadly. Um, 
so if, if I've got that right, I think, um, you know, uh, I I personally have, have seen some amazing uh, advisors in action in the past who are risk specialists. Uh, I've seen, uh, you know, we always talk about the 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 poor outcomes. You know, the the claims denied or the, uh, you know, the you know the products lapsed or or whatever it is. We we you know we don't talk nearly enough about the the amazing outcomes. Uh, and and that was uh, sort of multitudes more frequent for me in my past roles uh, than the the negative outcomes. I think there's personally, I you know, I think there's a um, you know, a continuing and you know growing space for risk specialists. Uh, it is a really complex field. Um, it is something that people need help with, and people need advice on. Uh, and I hope to see that um, uh, that profession uh, flourish in the in the future. Yeah, exactly. And we've you've mentioned before the the tailored suit. I'm, I'm, I hate to keep coming back to this, but um, you mentioned before that that's 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 certainly a a, a skill. Um, but you also mentioned the blanket concept, and and it could be fair to say that when it comes to say advice affordability, it's not that you know we've just made things a little bit more complicated. So let's let's maybe make an assumption that advice affordability is is not coming down anytime soon, unless of course we get something that can then help cover. Uh, again, if we think about the blanket, cover some of the the masses. Obviously, groups there in in, in many ways. Well, do you think that we'll see um, that happening, where there'll be you know specific people getting advised or the tailored suit, and other people getting the blanket? Well, I mean, I I mean, my hope would be that more people can access advice. Um, uh, in the future, I think there should be so much more of it. Um, you know, good advice. Uh, I think there's a a great need for it. And when I see, you know, Africa handles complaints about advisors. I'm not sure if you you know that it's less than 2% of our incoming complaints are against people um, who identify themselves as advisors. The vast majority of our complaints are against other uh, financial firms. It might be insurers and banks and uh, superannuation funds, um, platform providers, all sorts of, you know, other financial firms. When I talk about um, advice in in the future, and when you ask about, you know, is there a place for risk specialists? Uh, you know, I think there should be more advice. I think, uh, you know, there's lots of situations we see, lots of complaints we see, where I think had there been good advice, uh, we wouldn't be um, we wouldn't be receiving the complaint. So, absolutely, space for that in the future. Yeah, it's really interesting the stats around uh, the advice based or advisor based complaints versus product based. Uh, complaints. Um, and I guess that probably comes back down again to that communication understanding where advisors are probably doing a good job of letting their clients know uh, in advance, you know, what to expect. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's part of the obligation. That's part of the responsibility and the job. Um, you know, it's really important for advisors to uh, outline the risks and the, you know, the the compromises as well as the benefits of the uh, products that's being recommended. Yeah. Expectation management seems to be, again, a, a huge piece of this jigsaw puzzle. Um, and when I think of some behavioural economics around how uh, we as consumers treat insurance policies, and if, if I want to throw the um, the health insurance uh, under the bus here, it, it kind of feels like, uh, as, as you and I sit here looking at each other, we're both wearing glasses. We've probably <laughs> claimed glasses on our health cover or whatever it might be. It kind of feels like um, we, we live this process where, um, as consumers, we think we're there, we've got this insurance, we, we need to claim on it at some point. It's an interesting one, isn't it? I mean, I guess I see the benefit of having 
health insurance is a different benefit to having uh, life insurance. And and really with life insurance, it's the you know it's sort of the being able to sleep at night. Well, it's really with both, but um, you know it's it's kind of those those things that could keep you awake in the middle of the night uh, that um, that you then think, well, you know, I'm responsible for these kids, I'm responsible for this mortgage, and you know, um, you know the 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 school fees or whatever it is. Uh, but I I have something in my back pocket that's going to make me feel good about getting about my um, my daily life. I'm not going to think about it too much, but when I think about it, I'll get some comfort from it. Um, there, there is benefit in that to me as well as benefit in um, making a claim when I need it. Yeah, thank you. I, I love the, the concept around the the uh, the expectation management around saying that the best case scenario here is that this all of these premiums were a waste of money and you didn't need the uh, the cover and so the, the best case scenario is you're healthy. I'll take not claiming as my best possible outcome. Yeah, so we sort of we covered off a little bit on group um, being that blanket or, or that 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 um, you know getting in place helping a lot of people get cover. Um, how do you see group in, in the future? Are they, you know, is, is group going to go under through some changes like individual has or? Oh, look, it's, you know, I'm sure that there will be changes. Um, you know, what I hope doesn't change is, you know, the, the extraordinary um, superannuation and group insurance environment that we have, um, you know, just something to be proud of being, uh, you know, in lots of different countries, and uh, looked at the, you know, the financial systems in in various places. Uh, it's one of the benefits of working for for multinationals. Um, and uh, look, I'm always so proud of of our superannuation system and the way group insurance works. I think it does uh, afford cover. Uh, to an enormous number of people who might not otherwise be able to afford it, um, you know, in the past uh, that that has proven to be um, of great benefit to many of those um, people. And so, I'm sure that there'll be changes. You know, nothing ever stands still. Uh, but I hope we retain that um, uh, that wonderful system alongside the the equally and very different uh, tailored personal advice industry as well. Yep, there's been some. Um, uh, now we talk about income protection being the 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 disability income piece of this jigsaw puzzle. Um, there's some comments around, or some ideas around that. Um, you know, trauma or crisis recovery could also be on a on a a, a learning curve to say, uh, take the take what we've learned out of disability income and and apply it to crisis. I feel like in the evolution of of products, there will there will almost inevitably be some learnings as we. Uh, take this big step change on IP. Um, I think, you know, from my understanding anyway, or my experience, and it's certainly not, you know, it's certainly not everyone's uh, experience. But I do think it, it has been the IP cover that has been the, um, you know, the, the significant issue. Uh, but you know, I'm sure that there'll be uh, learnings for for trauma, TPD, and others. Yep. Uh, now we're in a we're at a place where we're, as we mentioned, we've we've been through a lot of the changes. There's still some more to come. How do you think they the the products will start to settle? Will you see them coming together a bit closer, or what are your thoughts on how they, all that might work? Uh, look, you know, I'd probably I'd probably ask that question of our you know of, of our uh, of our advice industry. You know, I I think um, I think these these products uh, anything new is is going to seem alien, perhaps complicated, uh, certainly different at the start. Uh, I can't help but think that you know th- that they will be integrated into uh, you know different philosophies of how to make advice recommendations. They'll be integrated into different 
product suites and, and recommendations that certain advisors give to their particular type of client. And I, I think they'll become the new normal. And I, uh, you know, I'm sure that the advice community is going to adapt and change um, because I've seen them adapt and change to so many other challenges over the years that I've been involved in this industry. Yeah, certainly resilient. T- t- talk to me about the concept of um, rehabilitation. Uh, you've you've seen a lot of uh, this over the, over the years as you've worked in claims with claims and claimants. The idea of you know helping people get back on their feet and, and rehabilitate has been such a big part of that that claims process. Do you think that's going to sort of suffer a little bit in the future? Oh, it's you know it's it's a it's a fascinating question because you know shorter benefit periods or you know, or, or smaller um, uh, benefit amounts could, uh, you know, it, the assumption could be that there should be less invested in in rehabilitation. But I think, uh, you know, the rehabilitation that is that is being done now, um, you know, has been a wonderful thing uh, for 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 life insurance customers um, as well as insurers um, and uh, really a win-win for everyone. And I think it's really a drop in the ocean so far of what could be done to, to help, um, to help those, uh, those clients on claim. I just think there's so much more opportunity existing anyway. I don't think, you know, that these changes will mean that it, it becomes something unnecessary or, or not financially beneficial, um, you know, to invest in. I mean, you know, for, for one thing alone, it is just a wonderful um, product offering uh, of an insurer to offer not only to, you know, to, to write the check, but also to support someone um, to get back to health. And I, you know, I really hope that that continues to grow and flourish, um, you know, in the context of these new products as well. Yep, couldn't agree more. Couldn't agree more. Uh, now, final question, uh, just on the disruptors of the industry. You know, the, the larger groups, the, the big tech companies. Uh, what, what, any thoughts or ideas in years to come? If uh, if we if we start giving all our personal information away to say a Facebook of the world, uh, that they'll start being able to tailor uh, insurance or, or those sorts of things um, and, and come in and, and and look to disrupt the industry. Uh, you know, I've, I'm sure that disruption is is coming in in one form or another um how quickly it gets here and changes things uh is another um i do think that there would always be a place for the personal engagement um and uh face-to-face discussion about financial situation objectives and needs um, about hopes and dreams, about fears, you know, about family, about finances um, that, ad- that an advisor has with their uh, client. And I think that relationship uh, of trust, um, you know, will continue to be an important thing. And, you know, the, you know, the, the, the more advisors uh, focus on that and work on that and continue to do that, uh, the better. I don't think that's going away no matter what AI can deliver in terms of, you know, uh, you know, tailoring to, you know, after reading your bank statements and, you know, your spending patterns and your, you know, uh, you know, your, your various other, um, you know, facts and stats. Natalie, thank you so much for coming on the, uh, the, the series with us and chatting to us. I really appreciate your, uh, your time, effort and energy. Thank you. It's, it's been fantastic. Thank you so much, Fraser. Thank you for joining us again, Ben Martin. Thank you, Fraser.
Now, we are talking big picture, the future, things that haven't happened yet. Uh, obviously, can't hold you to any of these things because we don't really know what happens in the future. Uh, tell us about, obviously, we're at this place now. Um, we've got these new products. Uh, they're just starting to settle in, I guess we could say. Um, what does the future hold? Oh, that's that's that, that's a million-dollar question, Fraser. I keep coming back to, and I obviously do not have a crystal ball, but I keep coming back to, We've got these new contracts that have been built with the one fundamental objective in mind, and that is to remove the nasty ad hoc rate rises and pricing pressures of the past. So when we look at the IP contracts now currently on offer, I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful that um, that the industry collectively comes together to 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 go to the root cause of why we're having this discussion in the first place. That we don't lead. And this doesn't result in another arms race in an effort to grapple for more market share because I know our advisors, they won't be able to talk. It's just not going to be palatable from an advice practice perspective. Ultimately, consumers and Australians, they need this cover. They need these contracts to protect their income. And I note that even for a client that's got no levels of non-deductible debt on the family family balance sheet, typically there's always going to be a meaningful place for an IP policy. So we're hopeful as an industry, or at least for me that works in the tech world, that we've gone and addressed the root cause of why we're having this problem in the first place. And we've got contracts that will remain fit for purpose and be liberated from those pricing pressures going forward. Yep. So... So learning from the lessons of the past, creating that stability and, and, and bringing that stability back to the normal part of, uh, of, uh, of, an, of a, an insurance portfolio. Absolutely right. And, and I guess some of the downstream flow-on effects there is that, you know, when you think about the end consumer, if they do suffer from a temporary illness, you know, then these contracts are designed to, where practicable, transition the client back to wellness and back into the into the workforce where we know that's going to be in their best interests long term yep uh, now this is all we've, all we've pretty much been talking about individual the whole time we haven't sort of touched on the group aspect uh, obviously individual was what has been changed first um, group is still yet to be touched what are your thoughts on you know the future of how group and individual will work together yeah, look, it's 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 a, it's an important one. Um, in terms of what's going to happen in the group space, I, I I don't know. But the discussions that I've been having with advisors is around okay, if my client, if I'm looking at recommending a new world IP contract for my client that is seemingly much more plain vanilla compared with the old settings, then why would I not just nudge my client towards a group salary continuance plan? We're hearing that a lot, and it's a valid question. What we say as techos is that when we compare a group contract, a group IP contract with a retail IP contract, the similar principles remain as they did in the old world. Okay, so the things you need to be keeping a lookout for, particularly from a best interest duty perspective, is is that group salary continuous contract guaranteed renewable? Is there a risk that the T's and C's within that group plan can be downgraded? once the contract goes into force without the client even subscribing to it. That tends to happen. We see T's and C's within group contracts being downgraded, especially when a group super fund puts out a tender and reorganizes their underlying insurance arrangements and providers. Again, 
there's a risk there that if the client has a group contract that we're setting the wrong expectations from the outset, noting that they're going to be ha- they're having to pay the premiums along the way, right? Typically from their super fund. So guarantee renewability is one thing to keep a lookout for. The other thing to keep a lookout for when you're comparing group and retail um, is the is the definition of pre-disablement income. So within the retail space, generally you get a 24 to 36 month look back period for the purposes of striking the monthly insured benefit for the client. Within the group space, that look back period is much more narrow and confined and restricted. So that's not going to be of any value for those clients that have variable levels of income from year to year. The third thing to keep a lookout for with these group contracts, usually you don't have the ability to link an ordinary extras plan to the super-owned group salary continuance contract. So that's code for massive alarm bells when it comes to meeting a super law condition of release at time of claim. If the client doesn't meet the super law condition of release, there's no second line of defense that they can fall back into within those group contracts. So there's a big question mark as to whether whether or not the client's going to be able to receive the monthly insured benefits when they need it most. Now, I'm not totally slagging off group contracts. That's not that's not my intention. But for the completeness and for the sake of having a balanced discussion in this space, I think it's important to call out those traditional shortcomings of a group contract that may not necessarily be in the client's best interests as, as a whole. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And, and as, a, as, a, as a techie in this space, of course, you see that very clearly. It's probably a little bit difficult. It's very difficult. Is it probably easier for advisors to see, but it's very difficult, difficult for consumers to see that or to understand that part of, you know, the, the, the value that comes with guaranteed renewable, the, the, you know, the loss of control and ownership that happens in a group product that, and the understanding of that whilst group plays an amazing part of getting a whole lot of people cover that wouldn't otherwise have it. How do we get that message out in the future to consumers that, you know, it just because it says income protection on the label doesn't mean you can compare, compare with a retail. Yeah, and this is where the value of the advice really emerges. And this is a crucial role that the advisor, this is a meaningful value that they bring to the table. They take that deep dive, they understand the client and make a recommendation accordingly. Without that detailed analysis, um, you know, there's a risk that the client's going to end up with the wrong contract that's not going to meet their expectations when they need it most. And this goes to the heart of the issues that we're seeing in the industry at the moment, the cost of advice as you know, Fraser, is escalating. And it's getting to a point where, you know, as practice principles tell us, it becomes, it's not commercially viable to service and provide advice to that mid-market of Australians that need advice the most. Um, So it's fingers crossed and we're hopeful that, um, you know, these reforms, these APRA DII reforms, together with the broader review into the cost of advice, altogether is... Is, is, is going to produce meaningful client outcomes for our industry and ultimately for Australian consumers in the end. Ben, one of the things that uh, I've sort of been discussing with some of the, the other people on the, on the panel is the idea around um, you know, behavioural economics, the way that we think about insurance as a product that we should be claiming on at some point, same way as we probably all, if you've had health insurance, you might have gone and got your eyeglasses or, or some stuff done um, just to get some of the money back. Uh, how does that behavioural economics from a point of view, how do you think that 
sits with uh, income protection insurance and risk insurance and how we sort of have to have a different outlook on that moving forward? Uh, yeah, that's a tough question. Um, I'm not sure if I'm going to add much value here, but the analogy I draw in my mind is car, you know, comp- CTP, comprehensive car insurance. When, I'm, when are the benefits going to materialize for me as a policyholder? It's when something goes wrong. That's the parallel I'm drawing in my mind, Fraser, with an IP contract. Yes, I'm paying the premiums along the way, but the benefits will tend to materialize when something goes wrong. To soften the blow, so to speak, if I can use the right words there from a behavioral economics perspective, looking at this, standing in the shoes of a consumer, the one thing that may soften the blow is the fact that if it's a self-owned income protection policy, I'm entitled to a tax deduction for my premiums. So whatever quote, whatever premium is being quoted, whatever that headline premium is, that's not reflective, as our advisors know, of the hip pocket cost of holding that policy, unlike a a comprehensive car insurance policy where it's obviously a non-deductible expense to the family budget. That's how I would kind of frame yeah, it's a good, it's a good way of uh, good way of framing it. Now let, let's uh, let's push ourselves out into the future, ten years from now. Looking back, how, how do you think all these changes have settled in? Well, I'm, I'm I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful that we've got IP contracts. We've got a good proportion of our Australians that hold robust income protection contracts that are liberated from those pricing pressures of the past. Because let's face it. The, the more susceptible these contracts are to pricing pressures, the greater the risk that they will lapse and they won't be in force at the time when Australians need them the most. So I'm an optimist, but I'm, in my mind, in 10 years' time, I'm hopeful that, this, that the industry has settled, the dust has settled, all of the steam has come off, both the regulators and um, us as professionals and Australian consumers, and that ultimately we've got stability in the pricing structures, not only for IP contracts, but life insurance crisis and TPD policies as a whole. If you're interested in continuing this conversation with Ben or any one of the team at AIA Technical Education Centre of Excellence, uh, you can hit them up via the email at tece at AIA.com. Check out their business growth hub for AIA Technical Services or just contact your local AIA BDM. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Uh, We look forward to uh, catching you very shortly. Thanks for having me, Fraser.